Hey everyone, uh, Handsome Jason here. Just want to thank you for tuning in and listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. Just want to make you aware of a few things that we've got going on. First and foremost, there's the Instagram pages and the Twitter pages that we have. That's where you can find us as well as uh, some of the content that we do when we're producing these shows. But far and above beyond that, we've just recently created a website. It's www.tappedintopsychedelics.com. If you log in there, you can see all of the episodes, uh, show notes, as well as transcripts will be published so that if you're more of a uh, visual person, you'll be able to read through all the content that uh, we've discussed. Additionally, you'll find a uh, donate button on the page. So if you like the work that we're doing and you want to help us make more of that, as well as support Adam and his uh, crippling Fabergé egg addiction, uh, I would suggest that you help us out and maybe throw a few schmeckles in our direction. It really uh, goes a long way and it is appreciated. Once again, that's www.tappedintopsychedelics.com. As always, if you want more of our content or you want to find it as it releases, please ensure that you like and subscribe to Tapped Into Psychedelics wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Tapped into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp, and with me today, my guest is Luke Jensen, who is a U.S. Marine Afghan vet. How are you doing, Luke? Doing well. How are you doing? Great, man. And, you know, I think this is going to be a really cool conversation because you're a super unique individual. And, you know, I was thinking about how to sort of plot out this conversation, and I think maybe the best way is just sort of start out with you know, your military experience, how you got to that place, what happened afterwards, and then we can get into the awesome stuff as we progress through this. So, yeah, man, let's get into it. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll see where this goes. Well, yeah, so starting with the military, I, I joined right after high school in 2003. Uh, it was not too long after 9-11, and there was this uh, patriotic, patriotic fervor back then to fight terrorism. Um, I came from like, um, from Nebraska. So, you know, cornfields and football and things like that. So you kind of imagine the environment I came from. And then I joined the Marines out of high school. I joined the Marine Corps Reserves. And um, I was going for a college degree to become an officer, but I was in a reservist at the time. And as time went on, I never got deployed. So I uh, volunteered for this National Guard unit that was deploying, it was the Airborne Infantry Unit, which I thought was pretty cool. So it was actually a LURS unit, long range surveillance. And they, um, this was a number of years later, um, and they retooled for mobile infantry, basically. So they, they made this unit, um, uh, basically like Humvees and MRAPs, which are like large Humvees. And the whole purpose is to train Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police. So that's, that's where I, um, quick story how I got there, how, to, how I got to uh, the National Guard in Afghanistan and um, and that, so. Well, how long did you spend in Afghan and sort of like, you know, you're, you did have a relatively significant military career, not as much as some, but, yeah. you know, decent enough. Yeah, no, I was in, uh, I deployed and I was in there for nine months. Uh, so the deployment was 12 months. We have three months of like training for it. We uh, were in like a, a base in California and it was like a full on, like, um, everything to represent like, uh, Afghanistan was there. So we had drills for IEDs and different kinds of situations, but in country we were there for nine months. Hmm. And so what we did is, um, our battalion 
and was training the Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police. So the idea at the time was we were going to train train their forces up so that they could take over the country themselves and be um, self-sustaining and do all the things that we're supposed to do that never really worked out in the end. Yeah, no, that, yeah that plan had some flaws <laughs> in it, clearly. So <laughs> then you came back from your deployments and... You know, I guess the question is, were you planning on going back for the deployment? Were you sort of done? Did you plan on having a career before in the military? Like what you, you've obviously gone in a very different trajectory, which we will get to shortly. But I'm just curious as to, you know, when you came back, sort of what was your mental state and the decisions that you were making that led you to this point now? Well, actually, my whole goal was to make a military career. Everything was aligned for that. Uh, my whole goal was to become a Marine Corps infantry officer. And that deployment was kind of a roundabout way to like um, to get a deployment on my belt before I actually did that in the listen side. So that was my whole dream. Everything was set up for that. I was going to college. Um, I eventually was a history major because it was basically I knew history really well. I didn't really try that hard. So path of least resistance. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. So like that. Everything. All my life was wrapped into that. So was my identity, which identity comes really big. I think for people in life in general, but especially in the military, um, I think people identify with it so much. So when I was in Afghanistan, I didn't directly see any firefights, but there's a number of times my life was put on the line um, for ridiculous reasons, and luckily nothing happened. Um, we had like intel one day that there's gonna be a terrorist attack on our base, and I remember I was gate guard and there was no extra guards, no extra anything, um, no, not even a blast shield. And uh, the intel that day was a vehicle born ID was going to come in, detonate, and guys with suicide vests were coming in, detonate. And um, luckily it happened that day. It was Muhammad's birthday. That's the day that was supposed to happen. But it did happen three weeks later. I wasn't on duty. And luckily no one died, but a lot of, some people were injured. I don't know how some of these people survived. The whole guard tower was shot up, RPG damage, all this stuff. And then they put the Humvees in, and then they put the blast shields in, and then they did all this stuff. So there's a, there's a number of instances like this where I'm like, what the hell? I mean, it's hard to imagine at the time, like my mentality, looking back on it, but I was totally okay with dying at the firefight. Like that was like, that's my job, you know, I'm infantry. Um, but I never planned on, you know, being hurt or killed because of someone's incompetence. And I felt like I was put in situations that were basically my overall life was at risk i'm not sure if that was that's everywhere in the military or just where i was at at that time that unit or what was going on um but but i strongly felt like you know i can't do this anymore so um it was after i got out i started um what turned out to be a goal um a life goal of mine because i thought there was no greater challenge than being a, being a marine corps infantry officer i thought to lead been the battle is like the greatest personal challenge i do in my life um so to lose that goal, to lose what I believed in, uh, was very tough. So identity is wrapped into that. I mean, there's other things as well. I was in Afghanistan and uh, I could just see how this war has been manipulated. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that reads books and interested in things anyway. So I was kind of becoming a little suspicious of it before I even got there. But once I got there or once I arrived, I just saw the whole situation like, hey, you know, Jeffersonian democracy is not going to work in this country. It's a it's a ridiculous idea, and there's nothing against them as a people or anything else. It's just you know they have a very tribal culture. Um, in many ways, it's in the Middle Ages, which you know I got nothing against at all. But you know, just we the idea this this arrogance that we can just take our system 
and put in any other civilization or any other culture and think it'll work and even think it's a good idea. You know, they are used to the way they, they do things. Um, there's Pashtuns, there's Tajiks, there's many different tribes. So there's no kind of like national consciousness of Afghanistan. That doesn't exist. Like I'm this tribe or that tribe. So we're like taking our cardboard cutout system of ideas that we think is perfect and should work for everybody and put on someone else. I could see this wasn't working at all. And I could also see how um, we were in Kabul. So there was the most, at the time we were in Helmand province where all the firefights were going on. It was, it was a much more challenging area. We were probably the most liberal city. And um, everyone who were training was not progressing. We're, the, we're not making any progress with the army, the police. And I knew everybody in the area, the whole city. It's a city of 3 million people. They're all saying the same thing. Like, these people we can't train. They don't want to learn. We're not making any progress. And it was month after month of this. And I knew everybody. And this was in Kabul. So I knew in the provinces, it must be much worse. So then the generals are going for Congress and saying we're making all this progress. So it kind of left me... Um, in many ways, kind of, I felt, I don't know, I'm looking back on it, maybe it's some kind of like existential thing where you have like this father figure of a, you know, government military that you think looks out for you and is telling the truth, but all of a sudden you see how they're lying to Congress, lying to the people. And then, you know, me on the ground, I can't even get, you know, enough support just to do my job. So after I got back, I was in this existential crisis of, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Like everything was geared for this. Everything was geared for this plan of this life. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's where I went from there. This kind of search. And that's what eventually brought me down to Peru. Yeah. So it, it's actually, it's cool that you say that is that idea that I think on some level, we all have that disillusionment with the system. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we, we try really hard to put our faith in it and, and to keep towing the line. And then all of a sudden you just see these cracks forming and, you know, and then yeah. like you said, it's an existential crisis of your entire identity. And it, it's a really interesting way that you phrase that. So you get out of the military, you're, you're sort of questioning your life trajectory. And then, so how did you end up going to Peru? Like what was the, the story surrounding that? Like, you know, just randomly going to Peru seems like an interesting life decision. No, it was interesting. Um, and I think these things happen for life and a reason. At the time, I would have never have thought this kind of way. But looking back on things, these things kind of enter your consciousness and enter your awareness. Um, I watched a Joe Rogan podcast. And I know probably a lot of people back then, especially, they've heard of ayahuasca for the first time. But I don't know if you've seen it. Most times when I mention it, people haven't seen it. But it was with Amber Lyon, if you've ever seen that one. Hmm. Um, she was in a bunch of war zones and during the Arab Springs happening in the yeah. Middle East. And um, she snuck out an SD card in her, in her bra because of the risk of her life. And um, it turns out CNN didn't air her report that she, she risked her life to get out with all these interviews and stuff. And, and it turns out the reason why is because all these revolutions that are happening in like friendly countries, the American military bases, we didn't report on. It was just the one the regimes that we didn't like. So eventually... She was telling Joe Rogan about this and she had all this trauma and um, Joe Rogan's just, yeah, why don't you go try ayahuasca? Like Joe Rogan says, so it goes to Peru, tries ayahuasca, comes back. He says this amazing experience. And she saw this trauma that came with her during just being in war zones, this report on just being in the area. So at the time, like I have no idea what's going on. Hell, I'll try anything. So I'll go try that. So it's just so lost. Like, 
And I've always been kind of like an adventuring type, I suppose. So I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll, I might as well go try that in Peru. It sounds like a, you know, at least, at least an interesting adventure. So that's when I decided to go to Peru. I think it was about 2013. Yeah, 2013 kind of seems like when this, the kind of integration of ayahuasca to rest, Western culture really started to kind of pick up. Because I remember that's kind of when I was starting to hear about it too. It was like 2000. 11, 12, 13, you started hearing people talking about ayahuasca and it was becoming, I guess, more readily available. So you go to Peru then, I'm assuming you land in Lima, you know, fly or bus to Iquitos, most likely fly. And then, then what happens? You just, did, did you make arrangements? Did you just show up and say, hey, does anyone know a shaman? Like, no, I, um, yeah, I landed in Iquitos and I was, you know, I've been to Afghanistan, I've been to Europe. But I never been to the jungle, so and you can't bust to Iquitos because it's there's no roads to yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's a landlocked. So yeah, yeah, the largest city in the world where you can only reach by plane or boat. So it was like for me, it was like landing in a Indiana Jones movie, you know, coming into the jungle and, and just the whole city is this jungle city with a bunch of moto cars and the jungles all around you, and um, just being there was fascinating for me, and um, so. What, what, what was the question though? Um, oh, just like how I, did this go? So you you get to, you fly into Aquitos and then you're just I'm I'm curious to see how this goes. Like getting to yeah, your yeah. first Iowa. Well, I found time I found like a a newer retreat center and what they were called like their adventure tours with ayahuasca and that's what attracted me to it. Like, well, if I'm going to, go to Peru, I just don't want to sit at one center. I want to kind of like see the country and have adventures. And this and this place did it. They took you on these um boat rides around Iquitos and they, the center was four hours in the deep jungle. So not around Iquitos where all they've been logging over the last couple hundred years. So it was all like old growth jungle and just really fascinating. So, we, so before even doing these ceremonies, we're exploring the jungle on boat rides. I think one point we're catching like baby crocodiles and stuff like that and falling pink dolphins in the river, which I didn't know existed. You know, uh, like I, I thought I didn't know there was freshwater dolphins at the time. <laughs> so like, all these experiences I never had. And then um, it was this brand new retreat center, a really beautiful place. And they started, um, they were just opening up. So it wasn't even completely built yet. And it was kind of a magical time there because it's kind of like this young couple that was building it. And um, and yeah, I had my first four ceremonies during a New Year's Eve. It was a New Year's, special New Year's Eve retreat. That's what we did. So out of curiosity, and I know like it's a very difficult thing to explain a psychedelic experience. And it's almost at the moment you put English words to it, you, you start diminishing it. But just yeah. just sort of run me through because like I've done ayahuasca quite a few times. I know a lot of people who have, and it's I'm always intrigued about the interesting consistencies and symbolism within them. So no, if I, you can, yeah, give me like a rundown. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I'm the same way. So I've worked at retreats and like, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm always asking people what they experience and especially what they see. Cause I think there's a terrain out there and there are similarities. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being who I was in the Marines and like disciplined, I, I was really strict on my diet. I did six weeks of like, you know, just what did they tell you to do? Like, like vegetarian, no sex. I even broke up my girlfriend for whatever crazy reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, later she's like, Luke, you could have just told me that. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I was, I was, I was in my own little world at the time too. Like I, I was doing a lot of trauma, and I wanted to do this as serious as possible. You know, I didn't know if like 
you know, what this is like. There's another shot. So I want to take the full experience of doing it. And um, so my first experience, the first night, it's all dark. As you know, when you do ayahuasca, it's, it's dark. So in the first night, like nothing happened to me. And everyone else had these like super, I didn't know at the time, but they came out like, oh, I, th I thought no, nothing else happened to anyone else. And everyone else had these amazing experiences. Like my friend that came with me had like confirmation of the afterlife. Yeah. Like, what the, hell? <laughs> the guy from florida that was addicted to percocets was like cured you know and here i was like meditative stance i knew i tried i prepared for this more than anyone else and nothing happened um so at first i'm like you know i'm concerned like did i just come down here for nothing i was really like hoping for some major healing and um, the next night i um they gave me a little bigger dose to know that nothing happened the night before and this guy came up he was really into like norse runes and I was too, and he, he was at Zen Monastery for like a few months studying, really cool guy. He had long hair, and he comes up to me, he's like, hey, brother, you want to do a, your second dose? I'm like, oh, I don't know. He's like, come on, brother, let's do it, you know? So I walk up, and I do the second dose, and then I'm walking back to my mat, and I feel something coming on. I feel something big coming on. So I'm like, okay, um, I better go to, the, go to the latrine, go to the bathroom first. Um, so in Iquitos, a lot of these places, they're the floods so they're on stilts so this whole center is like 20 feet in the air and these wooden stilts and it's beautiful but at night i'm walking across this this walkway to go to the bathroom and the whole thing feels like it's swaying like i'm going on some old sailing ship and i i go to the everything's wood and i go into this bathroom and all these colors are going through the walls i've never never seen before i'm like okay luke you know something something significant is going on here and i, I walk back out and um, what they tell you is you usually want to stay in a maloka because that's protected space. Not that the outside world is not protected, but there's just all kinds of energies out there. So like kind of stay up there for a little bit if you want, but come back in. So I'm like, all right, well, so I just want to look at the stars really quick. So I look over the edge. I look at the stars in the jungle. And just like you said, these experiences are very, very hard to describe. But the best way I can describe it is like the world of Avatar, like those kind of colors, that kind of vividness. And um, in the jungle floor, there's all these red lines of energy going through the whole jungle, intersecting with each other. And there's a sense of oneness and wholeness that the whole universe is unity. And nothing was said, but it's this overwhelming sense of unity and it's an overwhelming sense of awe. I look at the sky, the same thing, this, this energy coming down from the sky and a meeting in the horizon, the energy from the jungle, energy from the sky, and this overwhelming sense of unity. And I'm just, just blown away by this. The words don't describe it. It'd be considered, the way I thought of it, it was like spiritual rapture from like, you you read about in history books, like Joan of Arc or something like this. And I, I stepped back and then, because in ayahuasca, one of the things that happens is you purge. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after this, this powerful experience, I step back, then I come back over the railing and I purge over the railing. And what I see is I see this black liquid come on my mouth and it, it's just this long stream of it. And it goes a thousand, the earth, earth opens up and this black liquid goes a thousand miles into the earth. And this overwhelming sense that the earth's accepting all this negative energy I've built up inside me um, from, from everything, not just the military, but for a lifetime yeah. of this energy that's been stuck inside me. And, um, yeah so then actually i think then i back up i'm just like I back up and just what was that you know and um 
that guy, the same guy came up to me. He's like, Hey brother, how you doing? Like, oh, I'm doing all right. <laughs> he goes, he goes, <laughs> He's like, well, when you get a chance, get back to Maloka. I'm like, okay. You know, I'm like, what the? Yeah, you know, this is just blowing me away. And I go to the Maloka, and um, first time in my life, I see auras. I see the shaman's aura. Um, it's kind of interesting because I've read about these things. Because I was kind of on a spiritual path a little bit before this, searching for something, just reading books. But all of a sudden, these books became, like, true, you know? So um, I remember, like, reading about auras. You can't really look at auras directly, but all of a sudden... I would think that someone's lighting a lighter in the room because it's dark and this 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 light was shining. Like I can keep looking up and there's no lighter. But then I looked up, like, oh, I realized out of the corner of my eyes, I've seen, I've seen the, the shaman's aura. And then I would see like these lines of energy and the shaman was going around the room healing people with this kind of um clear, translucent Yeah, some kind of, like it's hard to describe these things, like you said, but it's kind of geometric as well. And he would Ikuro, he'd reach out and touch another person and um this whole time i'm just just enjoying it swaying to the icaros it's totally like this like rapture this whole experience and um yeah i woke up the next morning just like okay that was probably one of the most powerful experiences of my life and, and to this day that because this is my second ceremony my first experience is still probably the most powerful or one of the most powerful in my life um and then i remember looking out it was at night in the jungle. It's, it's on these huge, it wasn't the Amazon river, but these different rivers that meet the Amazon. And um, so it's still a huge river. So just looking out in awe of the universe, and just experience like there's way, way more to this universe than I, I thought before. Um, there's way more to this whole, what we call reality. And it really changed my perceptions. Yeah. I feel like, you know, the notion of this religious rapture that people have or this, you know, point of understanding is usually associated with an idea that everything is so profoundly connected. And that has always been like a recurring theme in my psychedelic experiences. It's just this deep interwoven, perfect connectivity that just exists and permeates all of existence. And then being able to feel right. that viscerally inside yourself. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's something to yeah. read that or hear a story about it. And then to viscerally accept that reality into yourself, like it changes you. Like it. No, I, I completely agree. And that's what I was thinking just as you said it, that there's one thing you're reading about it, like, okay, unity, unity, and you can, you can like think about it, but it's just a thought form, right? To feel it, to visually feel it, to know it through your being, it, it does change you. And it changes how you interact with the world, how you interact with yourself, how you interact with other people, how you look at your own problems. You know, like all these things become, I mean, all these Eastern teachers I read, or I read about thought forms and attachments and things like this, all of a sudden you feel it like, wait, why am I, why am I caught up? Why do I have all these little hangups? Like these are just small things compared to the awe of this universe and the, the beautiful experience of everyday life. Um, well, and you talk and about course, like, you know, not only the stuff that occurred in the military, but just simply being alive, you know, like me, like right. the, the programming that we endure to become an adult. You know, like you have to be programmed, right. right? Like you're born, you're given a name, you have experiences, culture informs yeah. who you are, your social group yeah. informs who you are. And then all of a sudden, someday you're like, is this really me? doesn't feel like oh, it yeah. is, but I guess this is the program that I'm running with. And either you make a decision to shed your programming or you just put your head in the sand and accept the program and work with it. Like it's, it's sort of unique, you know what I mean? When you go out there and you had this inclination that something wasn't right, that 
you know, who and what you were was not authentic based on the programming that you were giving. And then you just start the systematic process of deconstruction, I guess, no? No, I think there's so much to that. I think about that a lot. Um, all these programs we have, and I think still I've done lots of ceremonies, lots of ayahuasca. I still find these programs I have inside and these little thought forms. I find myself in ceremonies like, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about the you know, modern political system and you know, how it you know, desires a certain kind of citizen to operate. And I think that that program has probably always been around, but probably the last hundred years it's increased. But beyond that, just kind of like the cultural programming you said, the unconscious programming, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, what about mortgages or something yeah. ridiculous? Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, where did that come from? Why did, like, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, why are these things here? Why do we accept these things? Like, why? Because we just take them as normal because we're born into this world. We just think this is all normal and the way things should be. But if you sit back and think about it, like maybe this is as normal as we think it is. Maybe a lot of these systems that we have, like we should question them and everything. Like you said, like there's so many different things. Well, yeah. Normalcy is only reflective of a single point in time in a specific culture, right? You know yeah. what I mean? Like normalcy is an ever changing, ever moving thing that is specific to a culture that it exists in, which is, a, which is an right. interesting concept, right? And it's, and then you're just yeah. like, oh, this, this isn't even real. So, question for you, because we're, we go, go all different directions. We'll probably yeah, get yeah. back to this at some point. So, I kind of want to ask you a question. So, you you go to the Amazon, you're in this really cool retreat, you have this profound yeah. moment of interconnectivity, you know, and then you, you did, you said you did four ceremonies in that yeah, period? Total four. Yeah. So in any of them, did you see, I don't want to say the stereotypical sort of like, you know, the condor, the jaguar, the anaconda, any of these animal avatars that sort of come into your consciousness? Did you experience those? Um, no, I I didn't. I think everyone's visions are sort of different, you know, like whether like how visceral they yeah. are. Um, so mostly when I have visions, it's more more energy related. Yeah. But no, I, have, I, didn't, I didn't see any of those that retreat. Because see, that's one thing I'm super curious about. And I and I, there's a dude who I want to talk to, Larry Norris. I've already I've already talked to him, but he did his like his PhD dissertation on ayahuasca symbolism. But yeah. you know, I I sometimes wonder. Like I feel like there's a large amount of people who have like I don't want to say spirit animals, but interactions with like jaguars, caimans, whatever. And, and the very first time I did ayahuasca, I you know became a condor and then had this anaconda crawling really? around me, and it was like oh. I was a condor. There there was nothing else yeah. to it. And yeah. and I sometimes wonder, like, is that because I was told I was going to see <laughs> Amazon creatures or is that the medicine working through me in, in a symbological way that, I, that I'm able to, to formulate these things in my consciousness? And I don't, I don't really don't know the answer to that. I think it can be both, just from my personal opinion and experience. I've noticed the Peruvians, they especially see jaguars. Um, anacondas, mm. you know, because I think one, they live in the jungle and they're around that symbolism a lot too, but also those archetypes are within the plant itself. So anyone experienced that plant could experience that kind of symbolism. You know, it's very um, normal with an ayahuasca space, but that's just kind of my view of it. Um, I think all these plants have a certain amount where they reflect consciousness back to you, your own consciousness, and then they have their own consciousness. So it's kind of just a merger of the two. Um, yeah. So now, how long ago was that? You said, sorry, 2012, 2013? 2013, yeah. Yeah, and so now you've, you're in Peru, you have this profound experience, and then how does this progress forward? Because you've been sort of moving back and forth from Peru to the States, and now you're 
I'm not gonna say you're a permanent resident of Peru, but kinda, no. Yeah, I'm actually working on my residency right now. I'm living here. I'm um, I have a lawyer. I'm working on my residency, and it's 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 uh, changed. Well, yeah, between then and now, it's been a big story. So um, I came back to the United States. I was working for a friend. So after the military, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My friend, he owned a small uh, railroad company, built railroad crossings. I was like, hey, you want a job? And at first, I wasn't sure about working for a friend, but like, yeah, I kind of need a job, you know? But it actually turned out to be really cool. We traveled around the country building railroad crossings. But it also gave me the opportunity to talk to my friend, like, hey, can I take some longer time off? And he knew, I think he knew at some level that I was going through some stuff. And it's like, like, so I went to the jungle for three months at a time. And then I came back and... Um, this whole experience started building upon itself. So I noticed, well, one, I think, oh, I don't know which way to start with this, but I think things call to you in your soul. I think that's the best way to say it. Um, all of a sudden I feel my life shifting from everything I thought I knew to this whole another life down in a different country. And uh, I was just, fascinated intellectually by it spiritually drawn to it um and it would force me to confront sides of myself that you know not every time i i say the, the ayahuasca experience i described was very powerful and beautiful but not all more like that are very challenging um some can be deep deep soul work and i needed that and i think i needed that challenge especially that marine corps side of me to face to face those sides of me and then going down in the jungle and I lived there for months at a time with no electricity, like no running water. The shower was a couple of buckets of water over your head each day, you know, hot, hot jungle with every insect that wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah. you see, I'll see anacondas, boa constrictors. Like one time these jaguars started fighting right outside the, the retreat space, right beyond the tree line. It sounded like the end of the world. It was crazy, <laughs> you know, and I want to go look at these jaguars fighting, but all the Peruvians are kind of like inside, like, Cowering, yeah, you should probably them. lead by their example and be like, <laughs> you go out there, just never to be seen again. Like, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, American tourist, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I, I just like this this life I kind of always wanted, but didn't even know I wanted. I suppose I think that's what kind of led me to the Marines. Um, I was starting to live it, and I want to try to figure out how to like to keep doing it. So um, yeah, that's how it started just me going back and forth and i just came enchanted with it um just the wonder and these experiences it was both deep soul work but also just be able to sit and be in awe of the universe the awe of reality the awe of our existence which yeah. we don't get we're always so distracted you know what i mean like I, yeah. I feel that we live in a culture in like western culture where there's always like a bell ringing keys being shaken there's always yeah. a distraction from yourself and I feel that that's partially by design. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. to keep us distracted from the internal sadness, from the discontent that we experience right. living this weird, bizarre, monotonous existence. And then really being alone with yourself, like truly being alone with yourself in these spaces is, is it is challenging sometimes. And sometimes it's beautiful. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, yeah, no, nah, man, there's some things about me that are really fucked up and dark. And yeah. and accepting and working through those things and finding the origin to them, it's like a really profound experience in itself. And there's one thing that you said too that really super resonates with me, is that it was almost like the idea that this is a continuous growth 
and and I've figured this out over time with all my psychedelic use is that, you know, you have a psychedelic experience. These are not compartmentalized individualistically. All of these things build on one another. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's it's growing. Every experience has to do with the last on some level. It might not be apparent in the beginning, but it's another piece to this puzzle. You know what I mean? Like each experience, yeah. the integration between the thoughts, the processes, the slow progressive unwind of oneself is this structure, you know, this, this you're weaving this finely, finely composed, intricate composition of yourself. And so I, I have a question for you. And, and I feel yeah. like, you know, you've spent quite a bit of time in the Amazon. You've lived with these tribes. You know, what do the Amazonians, well, what do they feel about ayahuasca? Like, is it is it a sacrament? Is it... Is it like, how do they view this in their culture? And I know that different tribes have different ideas, but speak to the, what you would know, basically. No, it's interesting because there's so much depth to that. Even when you're down there and you're dealing with different tribes, um, it's hard to understand the culture from an outsider. And sometimes I think the shamans and the tribes, they kind of give us what we want to see, you know, like they, this, this kind of feel good, um, love and light uh energy and i think there is definitely love and light but um for them there's a lot to it it's very complex you have to, you have to almost picture yourself living in the jungle like they do um and most of them most of it's a lot of poverty too there's, and they don't really they really had money like probably 30 years ago so this this ayahuasca is kind of I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit or maybe going on a tangent but ayahuasca has changed their landscape now it's become popular in the west yeah because a shaman you know might just have a small group of people and someone gave them some jungle fish or something for a ceremony but now they can attract westerners with thousands of dollars um and that's an imaginable wealth power so in some ways there's all this beauty but there's also power corruption you know temptation of power especially a lot of these shamans like western women come down you know they don't even see people like this so there's lots of temptation and there's lots of there's lots of good but there's a mix and the jungle it has its elements of just survival because everything is consuming everything and they live in it it's almost like it's hard to imagine for the western mind same thing for me in afghanistan i think it was hard for the western mind to understand a typical person in afghanistan i think it's hard for the us even living there to understand the, the people in the jungle. Well, I've heard um, a, a German naturalist describe the Amazon rainforest as perfect chaotic murder every second of every minute of every day. Yeah. And he's like, and I, I've been in the Amazon rainforest, like not in Aquitos necessarily. We were on the other side of the Andes, but yeah, yeah. it is like, it's, it's an interesting lifestyle. And I kind of see what you're saying about how, you know, you, formerly were a culture that perhaps was a bartering trade system and yeah. wealth wasn't distributed in any way that we can possibly relate to from a Western culture. And then, right. you know, very, very rapidly, if you really think about anthropological timelines, you've just instituted a cultural system and an imbalance of wealth and equity within a tribal community. And then the unfortunate no. consequences of that streaming forward. No, I agree. I can go into that a lot because I see it. It's kind of weird because they never had um, a slow progression of a renaissance, enlightenment, things like this. Yeah. And But even just all of a sudden, a 
shaman's texting me with his cell phone, you know, in the States. That was the second, like the second or third time. The third time went down is the shaman Facebooked me. This is what happened 20 years ago, you know? And he's like, hey, come down to the jungle. And this is before like anyone did. My friend and I were the first people to do ayahuasca with this specific tribe, like ever, you know? And and, uh, it was because of modern technology. Um, So, but at the same time, you see these temptations and really not handle it. It's kind of, you know, oftentimes there's, there's greed, there's corruption and stuff like this. Um, and then all of a sudden the shaman was just kind of one of the people, but now the shamans has lots of money and he's bringing these Westerners. Does this, does the shaman have the, some shamans are really good. They donate to the tribe. They, they build buildings and help people out. Other shamans aren't as good. Um, I think there's a phrase I really enjoy. But don't don't mistake ability or power, like spiritual power or spiritual ability, for enlightenment. I think that's something to always keep in mind when you yes. shamans or anybody. I've had a lot of conversations about that specific thing. It's like, you know, we all want a guru, we all want someone, we all want a teacher and tell us the path. You know what I mean? Like everybody's looking for that, but at the end of the day, you know what I mean? Like I've always said, be very wary of someone who claims enlightenment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Further, I doubt if someone was truly enlightened that they would be claiming anything of the such. But it's one of those interesting things. Like, you know, we we exist in this, you know, the sea of gurus and self-help and claims of enlightenment. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans. We all have faults and we're all subject to the same temptations. It's just a matter of, I think, realizing them and being aware of them, really. No, I agree, especially now I live in the Peru. I live in the Sacred Valley of Peru right now. I lived in the jungle before. But uh, you do. It's interesting in spiritual communities. You see the very sincere people that are in for the right reasons, and then you see ego. Then you see yeah. these people with ego, they might be good. They might be a good healer, you know, but you might they might have their own temptations, and they have their own healing to do, their own self-work to do, their own blind spots. Well, the super bizarre hierarchy that occurs in these highly spiritual environments, you know what I mean, where everyone's almost trying to out-spiritualize one another, (laughs) and it becomes this point of purity and this hierarchy, the structures, and I sometimes I just wonder if that just pertains to the profound desire for hierarchical structures that humans have. We're all just primates, I guess. Well, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, there's probably something to that for sure. But especially, you know, I've, I've been around a bit and seen other retreat spaces, you know, like these little clicks that can form. And, you know, we're all in here for the healing, but all of a sudden, you know, who's the better healers? Yeah, and, yeah <laughs> the pecking order <laughs> emerges. Yeah. 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 So. Or like, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, just going back for a second, you yeah. know, so what would be the dominant Amazonian group in the Sacred Valley? currently like what would be the the tribal group for ayahuasca yeah well the shipibo are in peru are probably the most famous for ayahuasca but they don't they're not in the valley they're they're in the amazon so sacred valley is in the andes so we have quechua tribes up here which do wachuma and san pedro medicine but if we want a shipibo shaman generally speaking you have to fly one in there's probably a few living in the sacred valley as well um but in Peru, I think the overall tradition is Shipibo. Um, but you have other tribes too. And I have experience with some, but um, the Shipibo is by far the most I've experienced with. So, and again, this is something that I'm curious about. Is like how, you know, I've, I've heard this, and I, I don't know if this is anecdotal, whether this is nonsense or not, but that like, you know, 
ayahuasca itself told the shaman to spread this into the Western world. And I'm not sure if that's just Western people using this as an excuse to start stepping in and, you know, I don't want to say exploiting, but at the end of the day, everything is a version of exploitation. You know, like how did, how did this merge to a point where something that was kept so deeply in the Amazon rainforest become this massive stepping point in cultural phenomenon that is, that is ayahuasca? And it really has become that. No, that's an interesting question. Um, hmm. There's so many different ways to look at it. Because you talk about like, there is this kind of capitalistic um, part of to it. And that's on all sides. That's with, with the people here. You can, you know, everyone, and it's just true. You have to live in the modern system. You have to get paid, right? So you know, everyone, everyone needs, you know, you know something. Um, but I also think there is a spiritual element to it. Um, people talk about it. I'm not sure where the origin came from, but you know, this came about a certain time in human history where we needed this. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it feels like it. It feels true. And sometimes if things are archetypically true, they might as well be true because these right. things give meaning to us. Well, and know? I think the same way, to be honest with you. Like, you know, if you look at, you know, you, you look at the anthropological look of, of psychedelics and you look at it European, you look all over the world, there's traces of psychedelic use. And this... You know, the last several hundred years of abstinence from psychedelics seems to be the experiment. You know what I mean? Like yeah. psychedelics aren't the experiment. The absence of psychedelics seem to be the the human experience sort of experiment that we're working on. Is how do we function without these compounds? <laughs> and and Woman argued not very well. And so now, like our psychedelics, you know, you, you look at this perspective as like, are humans looking for psychedelics as a tool for eternal healing? Or are psychedelics using us? You know what I mean? Like, this is like that notion of, of who's, <laughs> who's basically, you know, cultivating whom in this circumstance? Who's domesticating whom? You know what I mean? Like, you, one can look at the perspective of like, you know, humans cultivated wheat, but wheat has done more to change human behavior with the agricultural revolution than the other way around. You know, one could say that wheat cultivated humans. You know what I mean? And I know that's a thought exercise, but in, in that same concept, sometimes I wonder, like, you know, it did ayahuasca sort of work its way out of the rainforest with some sort of interesting intent? And it's hard not to do ayahuasca and then come out of it realizing that there's some sort of separate intelligence that exists within this plane, this space, within this substance. No, I think, well, um, the first thing is has a smile about it because, like, my personal life now, I can't imagine my life before these plant medicines. They've been critical in my life. Like, like, how did I function before these things, you know? And I had a lot of issues and it's been profound for my healing. That's not saying it's end all be all, but like, wow, it's, it's really changed my perspective. And, uh, the second part of ayahuasca, I think it's a very, it's a thought experiment, but I think it's a very interesting thought experiment because it forces human beings not to put our own consciousness or our own species consciousness as primary. Maybe we're not primary. Maybe there's other forces at work that we do not know what's going on. And I think the ancients were much more comfortable with that thought that, like the Greeks, they talked about mystery, like the mystery of the capital M, and something to enjoy and to, to and then the Christians later adopted that, some of it. But the, the idea of a mystery, a sacred mystery that's beautiful. And the modern mind hates mysteries. We try to explain everything. Even if, even if the explanation doesn't make sense, we'd rather have some, someone say something and usually it's some scientific type, you know, whether he knows what's going on or not, he'll say something and people want the explanation. But I think that to hold that mystery, that sacred mystery, like 
there might be things going on that we don't understand and there might be consciousness that we understand and like you said that once you experience ayahuasca i think experience an open mind you realize that there are other consciousnesses out there um, with their own intents and their own purposes and their own desires and and what's more is that their consciousness isn't human so we can't think about it the same way. Yeah, and it seemingly exists out of a biological formation that we normally associate with any type of consciousness. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's almost it's it's activating our organic computer to utilize right. and express itself through us, which is a very unique thing. Like I remember it was I don't know my fifth, sixth, seventh ayahuasca experience, and all of a sudden it sort of just clicked that I was like, you know. This entity, this this intelligence is utilizing my neurological system, my consciousness, my biology to express itself for its own purpose, which benefits me, which was an interesting yeah. thing when you're like, wow, I'm really taking a back seat in this experience, in my own consciousness, in my own experience to allow something else to sort of drive this vehicle. And it was sort of this interesting realization where you're like, yeah, you know, it makes you really question the the notion of consciousness and ideas of free will and yeah. Right. I think the like ancients and the Zen Eastern thought thinks the same way where consciousness is riding a wave. We think individuality is not, not really that. And we think free will is not really that. Not to say those things don't exist, but I think it's interesting to think about, you know, where does our consciousness end and the other begin? I don't think it's very clear. Um, but also speaking that point, I forgot I this one woman in the ceremony, she, she had this vision that ayahuasca contacted humanity because ayahuasca want to be a spacefaring species and that if it developed humanity enough that we would see ayahuasca around the universe. I don't know. I mean, I just thought it was really fascinating. Some of the people, the things that people experience, they see. So Right. And, you know, even the idea too of like panspermia where life on this yeah. planet came here through like a meteorite strike or through a destruction of yeah. another planet and extremophiles land here, and that is, that is the seeding of single-celled organisms on this planet that turns into this biological, you know, expression of life. Right. And that's, you know, psilocybin came that way. And I, I've heard a lot of people who have done larger mushroom trips have these experiences that pertain to would-be notions of panspermia, which is sort of interesting. And then having this yeah. sort of like this biological entity emerging on this planet being like, yeah, no, we want to get out of here. We want to colonize the universe. <laughs> How do we do so? Hitch a ride yeah. with these talking monkeys and we'll see how far we can go. Yeah. 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 So, look, I also want to talk to you too about sort of, I don't know if I'd call it a hobby, a pastime, a, a job or something, but, you know, you've you spent a lot of time doing EEG on people actively in ayahuasca experiences. Yeah. So, um, when I got back to the States, it turns out it was really rare at the time. It was like 10 years ago, around the same time as ayahuasca, my friend start doing neurofeedback, QEGs, and brain training. I thought it was fascinating. And it was one of my tools I used for my own healing. Um, because even at the time, like I was a Marine, so if I had issues, I wasn't going to talk to a therapist about it. You know, that wasn't my style. <laughs> yeah, what, are you a pussy or something? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why? yeah, why would you do that? But um, a QEG, I could look at my brain waves and go, oh, okay, like if I train these brain waves, I'll feel better. And this, this brain wave is usually a sign of like PTSD. If I just train that down, like I could feel better and be more efficient. Oh, okay. You know, it's like more performance type things. So it really kind of spoke to me. But then as I started like looking into this, like there was so many implications for spirituality. 
Um, there's famous cases in the seventies or famous case where one of the greats in the field, Elmer Green, he went to India to study meditators and yogis hmm. and these people with these seemingly amazing abilities with QEGs. Um, and he found that these all had specific brain waves to them. And then I started looking to this more and like, and to date, there's been hardly any research on shamanism and plant medicines. There's been some, but there, but there hasn't been a much like, and uh, I was kind of surprised because I thought like, well, if I did this 10 years ago, there'd be a lot more to research. But so, so far I've been, I'm publishing my first paper here soon. So I'm really familiar with the research and a lot hasn't been done yet. And I think it's really, we're really, I think the 21st century will be the century of consciousness. So yeah, I spent all my savings on all this really expensive gear because I believed in it. And then I met my mentor, who's uh, one of the top people in the field. His name's uh, Dr. Richard Suter. I met him at a conference. And I go, hey, here's my idea. I want to combine QEG brain mapping, neurofeedback, and uh, with plant medicines. And he, he tells me, you know, I've been waiting to meet someone like you. I'll train you. And um, it turns out he's a master of Zen. He doesn't call himself a shaman, but I can tell he's a shaman. He's also uh, really into the neuroscience. So we started doing Zoom calls. We started training. And he goes, hey, I don't usually tell most people about this, but to understand shamanic you know, brain waves and stuff like this, here's what you need to know. So I'm kind of like his field researcher. So part field researcher going down and researching um, ayahuasca for one, but also Wachuma, which there's been, I don't think any published studies at all until last year. The first one I saw came out last year. I was out of the Netherlands. And it's just a questionnaire study. So with, with QG brain mapping, we can do pre and post maps before retreat and after retreat and see the changes in the brain. So this isn't just a neurological, I mean this isn't just a psychological change, but actually new pathways are opening up, new new neurological um, like new new neurons are coming to being, like new, new neural growth, things like this. So it basically allows the brain to become more adaptable to thinking new ways, new thought patterns and stuff like that. But there's also a spiritual component to it. Um, so we're kind of looking the outside at this beautiful part of humanity. And we're just beginning to look at it, um, our, our spiritual nature, because it's all linked the mind, body, and soul. And that's, that's what I'm exploring. And, um, with my partner, Chinsia, she's helped me out and we're doing research down here and, um, we're partnered with retreats and we're going to run retreats too. So, a, that's awesome. And now B, so how, okay, so explain to me like I'm a four-year-old or maybe a three-year-old. Four-year-olds yeah. are pretty clever. So what is, what is happening? So, so say someone comes in. So I come down. I'm psychedelic naive, plant medicine naive. I do an EEG. I go in. I have a psychedelic experience in ayahuasca and then I come out and you put it on me several days afterwards or whatever your protocols are. Yeah. What changes are you noticing? like specific to like in a way that is, you know, theta waves, delta waves. Like I, most people don't understand what that is. So, yeah. So there's a lot to it. Um, yeah. One of the biggest challenges we have is explaining to people because they come down and uh, want to do ayahuasca, which is amazing. Of course. I'm like, well, Hey, we have this other thing too. And, you know, and explaining it. Um, so because I think it'll be more, as it becomes more common, people understand it better. But um, so basically we have four brain waves, delta, theta, alpha, and beta. And how those brain waves appear in your brain tells us, you know, many things, if not most things about a person. So I can see anxiety, I can see depression, I can see insomnia, I can see head trauma, uh, attention difficulties like ADD. We can also see meditators. We also know what performance looks like. Um, 
So we take this standard EEG, which is the raw brain waves, we pass them to a QEG, it's quantitative. So we, we can see those comparisons. Um, so when someone comes into a retreat and they come out of it, the things I was expecting, we see. I see, we can see the measurements for anxiety and depression lifting. We can see that in the brain. Um, but we can also see all kinds of other things. So there's power levels in the brain. There's often like inflammation from head trauma. So the interesting that we've noticed is that at least for ayahuasca, there's not one set pattern. The brain doesn't move one certain way. The brain seems to move in a way that's needed for that person. Hmm. So we've seen people, for example, with inflammation from head trauma be reduced after just three days of ayahuasca. Uh, we'll see people with, this one really surprised me. This person had a, a brain wave for ADD. It was like high theta in the front. And they all, and quite, we also do questionnaires to further validate, you know, what we're seeing. And they also answer the questionnaire for ADD. But then after three ceremonies, that brain pattern was gone and they reported no attention problems. So we're seeing all kinds of things that I don't think anyone's ever written about that or published anything on it, but it seems like whatever that person is dealing with, um, in their, in their neurological state, ayahuasca seems to have an effect on it. Um, whether it's calming the brain down or giving more power when it's needed and yeah, different things. Which, which is kind of cool because, you know, you look over, the, let's just say the anecdotal literature right off the bat because it's yeah. there's the most plethora of that. Like it's incredible amounts of yeah. people, yeah, like ADHD, anxiety, depression, PTSD. And it seems like on some level that, you know, I, I find that some people have this idea that psychedelics are going to make them tele, you know telepathic or it's going to make them genius and increase them above and beyond what they are biologically but to me i feel like psychedelics are just bringing you back to what you should be biologically devoid of all the traumas and influences that you've experienced over your lifetime you know like the cumulative total of injuries to your brain whether emotional or physical you know what i mean like restoring yourself to like a status quo of what you should biologically be which is a really fascinating idea no i think um, I really thought about that way, but I think it's definitely true because in some ways the, the brainwave training, I'm doing the same thing. Um, we notice people with depression and anxiety, for example, the psychology becomes rigid and the brain becomes rigid. So with neurofeedback, we train the brain, we, we train the brain to become more open, but the psychedelics and, and plant medicines are doing the same thing. When you open the brain up, it becomes more adaptive and that's our natural state. That's what it's supposed to be. But with the modern world, the way it is, and giving multiple factors, um, and somehow it makes us more rigid and we're designed to be really open. Um, and we're designed because we, when we're open mentally, psychologically, spiritually, we can, um, accomplish our goals and navigate the world much more efficiently and be happy. Yeah. So another question for you, and I know we're kind of like going around circles here, but <laughs> so since you've been in, you know, Equitos since 2013, how do you see, like, is it expanding like exponentially with, sort of this subculture, this Western subculture embedding itself in this area? Like, how, how do you see this moving? Like, was there like a wave and a crest and sort of subsiding? Or is this cultural phenomenon that is ayahuasca on the West, like still growing? No, I think it's still growing. Actually, I looking back on it, I didn't really realize when it came down for the first time, how much change would happen. Um, so I kind of, cause at the time it was kind of a really niche thing and you kind of had to really, really kind of seek it out, even though it was really opening at the time, it's still 
more, uh, yeah, I'd say more of a, a niche experience that most people haven't heard about yet. I think it's become much, much bigger. Um, for example, I was, when I was first came down, I was 28. And I think I was like the oldest person there, one of the oldest people there. And uh, it's kind of a younger crowd. And now I, I work at different retreats. Now there's these really high-end retreats. And I've, I've worked at different ones. But now we have like some of these groups average in their 40s and 50s. And there'll be doctors and lawyers and psychiatrists and you know different different professional types. Even you know, people like 60s and 70s will come down now. So I think in that way, it's, it's changed. People are seeking something and right. it's become... Um, yeah, and I, I think that's a, like a very powerful point to make is that you're seeing doctors and lawyers and CEOs and and people of affluent culture coming to yeah. do this. Whereas, you know, I, I think part of the problem with like sort of the '60s LSD movement, everything is that it seemingly was stuck in a specific demographic, and the right. rest of society was too rigid to to accept, to understand, to to explore what was going on. And now, like, I am very aware that I live in a bit of an echo chamber <laughs> when it comes down to psychedelics. You know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah, sure yeah. you live in one and two okay. in, in the Peru. Like, fuck, this is part of, of your, your day-to-day experience. But at the yeah. same time, it's, it's amazing how many people, like, almost, I, I, you know what? I would say, like, probably 80% of people that I know and just not like friends, but just people and out in the ether, like know what ayahuasca is. They've heard about it. They've watched a documentary. They've heard someone mention it. Their brother's cousin did it. You know, their their sister-in-law did it and healed herself from trauma. Like it's, you know, when, when Netflix starts feeling that it's profitable for them to start putting on documentaries on Netflix, you know, there seems to be some sort of cultural shift in that direction that's a little bit more significant than, you know, a couple of hippies doing ayahuasca in the rainforest. You know what I mean? Like it seems that this has become an independent cultural movement that is expanding beyond the constraints in which people normally thought it would. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and that's kind of one of the reasons I'm, I'm trying to do the science of it too, because I think to change the culture, it has to be more than just the personal experience. As, as powerful as those are, I don't want to take that away at all. But eventually we want to have the data. Um, I think it also, like you said, it also helps me have like um, different stratas of the society engaging in this you know because in the 60s like you said it was kind of like this you know hippie movement that wasn't really part of the mainstream culture um but now many of those hippies back then are you know much older now so maybe those people are coming back and and now we we went through that first iteration i think the second iteration that we're going through now um, can be much healthier and we we can approach these things in a much more professional way because i think yeah so many people found healing and it's not just not just those those hippies. Even though the hippies, I like them. They're yeah. still out there. Yeah. <laughs> Smell it, but truly, it makes me feel wonderful. <laughs> so, question for you, and like, I, I'm just this is just a, a thought that persists. Is like, do you do you think psychedelics can be exploited? Exploited? Explained? Exploited? A hundred percent. Anything could be exploited. Yeah. But I mean, explain. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you think ayahuasca could be explained with modern rationalism and materialistic ways of thinking? Um, no. Right. You have to be careful with this. You have to be careful how I describe this. Because a lot of people, when I, especially these hippie types I was talking yeah. about, I come down with technology. They're like, hey, man, I, you know, like, I don't want, I don't want anyone to explain this experience to me. I just want to have this experience, you know? And I, and I, I kind of say, like, I'm not, I'm not explaining it. I'm just 
looking at it from one lens and trying to understand it from one side, I don't think we can ever explain consciousness. Right. Consciousness itself is unexplainable. Like, why are we here? Why does it exist? Why do I think at all? Why am I not? Why, why can I self reflect? Yeah. Like that, why can no I be aware of myself as an independent right. consciousness communicating with you in a specific moment? Right. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, if we can't explain that, um, we're not going to be able to explain the psychedelic experience. But I actually think the psychedelic experience sheds lights on the first part. Yeah. Because it, it, it brings it more in a focus. Like, wait a second. It makes it much more visceral how much we don't understand consciousness. Well, and it's like one of those things that you can only become aware of a problem if you take a step back and view yourself objectively and be like, yeah, okay, I I was, you know, I I see why I'm doing this, this behavioral trait, this mannerism that I have. And I I find that maybe psychedelics can do the same thing where it pulls us away from our consciousness that we can view it objectively and be like, okay, we, we can start to map out what consciousness might be by being able to disassociate from it and by able to look at it from a slightly different perspective. And then there's a lot of organizations doing that. You know what I mean? Like the DTM and D- right. DMTX program, as well as Imperial college are sort of like trying to map out the ether world and stuff like that, which I think is a fantastically insane idea. No, I think that's great. I didn't even know about that. But yeah, I, I mean, whenever I talk to people in ceremonies and someone comes out, and they, especially if they see some kind of entity, I'm like, well, what do you see? What are they like? You know, did you communicate with them? Because I think there's a terrain out there. And I think, one, I think it's part of human nature to explore the unknown. Oh, it totally is, man. You know, people have been jumping on boats and sailing into the night for right. thousands of years. You know what I mean? It's not going to change anytime soon. We just need a different right. place to explore, and exploring oneself is an interesting idea. But it's funny that you said that too about like I'm not sure if it's just collective human archetypes in how we perceive these these experiences, but like they are starting to quantify specific things that people are seeing in psychedelic experiences mm-hmm. and the consistencies within that to be like, yeah, so either humans are all profoundly susceptible to impressionism, which it's true, we are. Or there is some sort of weird subconscious consistency or these things are an actual separate landscape that has its own rules and regulations, which is an interesting thing that I do think in the next like 15, 20 years, there's going to be, you know, this research will get refined and start moving forward and coming out. And then you have the advent of AIs to help assist with this. It'll be, I think it's a really amazing time to be alive right now. Yeah, no, and most people are, I find it interesting because, I don't say, yeah, most people I'd say, or at least a large amount are missing it. They don't know what's going on, especially the research community. I'm glad those organizations are out there. But I think of me down here with this equipment and no one's really doing this, you know, and like, why not? There's these universities with billions of dollars worth of research funding. And and uh, I think it's probably one of the most interesting things going on in the world right now. Um, but not a whole lot of people are doing it, but the people are doing, are doing really good work. And I think that landscape you're talking about, there is some kind of landscape out there. I think Jung talked about this. Carl Jung and um, many of his contemporaries, the collective unconscious. Yeah, there's some the collective kind of, human consciousness. And... Right. And, and, uh, and once you start reading it, I always find it interesting when you start reading Jung and you start experiencing it. And then these kind of things happen in ayahuasca ceremonies and dreams. I and mean, dreams have landscapes, have archetypes. We have our internal archetypes that come out in dreams. I think they come out in um, these ayahuasca, psychedelic, plant medicine experiences. But I think it's careful to say archetypes because people just say it very casually, archetype. 
but the archetype once again with a capital a like these things exist these are living entities and young was always careful about going too far with it because of his audience mm-hmm. he wanted to write for like the scientific minded public yeah. but later in his life it was very clear that you know when he was saying unconscious he meant soul and um i think that like in the past people always thought that these things existed that these landscapes existed and for me um it's not so much the entities i've met that I've, i hope to meet more and explore that train but i could definitely see within the work of shamanism there's a structure to the energy there's a structure to the healing there's it's not just not just um, some craziness you know like they, i can see energy being moved down the room um and that's just my personal experience but for me like there is a structure out there um and i think over time we'll be able to explore it i think some people have explored this somewhat with like esp and things like this like there's there's plenty of evidence for that it's just you know mainstream science or mainstream you know i don't know what you call it because i think the the world kind of gets locked in certain ideas and until that world is ready for that idea it's not gonna break through no matter how much evidence is there so i think we're yeah. reaching that point I, I know what you mean that there's interest about the idea of collective truths and collective lies you know what I mean? Yeah. And how a convenient lie can stay so permissive in a culture for so long. And it just seems yeah. to whether or not a culture as an entity is willing to accept something as a fallacy or, or a new truth to exist within it. But, well, Luke, we're, yeah. uh, sorry, I was just going to say we're, we're sort of running out of time here. And is there anything you sort of want to pitch or talk about before we go? Because we, we've covered uh, some interesting subject matter, I'll be honest with you. But. <laughs> Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's fun talking to you and, uh, it's fun talking about my experiences in Peru, especially from, um, to get the kind of ideas out there, like you're talking about. I'm glad the work you're doing because, um, there's really amazing things going on in this world. And I think, um, I'm really blessed to be right now in Peru observing a lot of it. Uh, so right now I, I specialize in neurofeedback. I do remote training for like integration and people coming down. Uh, it can be a very powerful tool and we do spiritual we train spiritual states so i'm uniquely trained in that i specialize in spiritual brain training basically the long and the short of yeah. it um, and also we're doing our own retreat in uh december we're kind of combining i didn't go into it but i'm also really into jujitsu so we're combining like jujitsu martial arts um brain mapping neurofeedback and uh, ayahuasca so that's actually doing. kind of a rad combination to be honest with you. so out of curiosity say one of our listeners was like you know what I like the sound of this. I want to go do some ayahuasca in Peru. Like, do you have yeah. a retreat that you would recommend? Something that is safe, something that is, I don't want to say legitimate because I don't even know what that means, but something that you would think is a good place for someone to come and participate in. Yeah, no, I, I work with, I've been around a Peru a lot. And um, if someone's interested, they can definitely ask me because I know um, the places I would recommend because there's different um there's all kinds of stuff you have to be careful about in Peru. Um, yeah. But there's one guy, there was one retreat in the Sacred Valley where I'm at that I work with a lot called Anahata. Um, and they're really good. They're really reasonably priced and they have beautiful ceremonies. They're small groups. How like do you spell four that? Four to six people. Like, do they, have a, do they have a webpage? Is that a... Yeah, no, they have a webpage. It's A-N-A-H-A-T-A. So it's the heart chakra, uh, Anahata, I think in Vedic tradition. So, yeah, and they're really, they're really good. And I actually showed up, uh, I know the guy for a while, but I showed him like a beautiful, amazing ceremony, small groups. I think 
some of these big retreat centers when you get you know 15 to 20 people in a group i think you definitely have a powerful experience but i think the smaller groups can have more of that bonding experience I yeah i've thought that too you get like big groups and things sort of get lost in the mix of energy and you know you get like five six seven eight people everyone can sort of bond together in the collective experience and it's right i could be wrong right. on that but all right awesome yeah. man well, dude, it, it was like really cool talking to you, and I know I've, I've enjoyed all of our previous conversations. And you know, man, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's interesting what you're doing right now, and you know, your whole sort of origin story leading to this point is, I think, it's fascinating. To be honest with you, I think a lot of people would love to do that. It's just scary, you know. Yeah, you know, everything and, in the wind, um, and <laughs> <laughs> it is. I think it's funny because I think it's one of the best decisions in my life, and you have, but you have to be ready for it. You know, like I think, well, it probably is the best decision of my life. It changed my life. Well, you, you um, give up the stereotype, right? Like married, house, white picket fence, kids, job, yeah. truck, pension. You know what I mean? Like it's that you've given up the American dream for in search of yourself. It's an interesting concept. No, it's that's exactly what it is. And there's just there's comfort and familiarity, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of learning of yourself when you, you step out of the usual was comforts so yeah well hey man like i said thank you for your time i uh i really enjoyed the conversation it was cool i hope to talk to you again yeah and one last thing too my website's neuroenlightenment if anyone wants to talk to me about it yeah man or anything else any advice or anything when we uh when we publish this we'll include links to everything we'll include a link to this ayahuasca uh ceremony yeah. house or whatever you want to refer to it as as well as your web page yeah. and everything because Hey, it's super interesting, man. I, I encourage anyone to check this out. Cool. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.